currently we depend on our passwords so, so much. But at the same time, we also know that if a hacker gets his or hands on a valid username and password, a credential of an employee, all those investments you have made on firewalls, on network management, all suddenly become useless, right? Because the attacker has valid access to your network. Hello and welcome back to Management Cast. This week we have with us again for a final week Oiku Ishik. Oiku is the Professor of Digital Strategy and Cybersecurity at IMD. And for one more week, that's what we're here to discuss. Welcome, Oiku. Hi, John. Great to be back. It's great to have you back, Oiku. And last week, we finished off by talking about what CEOs, COOs, C-suite executives come and speak to you about. You said there were some very common things. Ransomware was one, phishing was another, and the cybersecurity problems around cloud service providers was the third. Now, we know what the problems are today. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the problems of tomorrow. And I want to start with those three things. Do you think in 5, 10, 15 years time, we'll be talking about those three things or will they be three different things? What is the future of cybersecurity looking like at the moment? That's a very interesting question, John. And sometimes I think I'm a bit too pessimistic about this topic. But I think, let me let me start by mentioning two trends, right? One is AI that we also talked about in the previous episode. AI and how it impacts cybersecurity is very interesting. It's a double-edged sword. We know that AI has been super useful in fraud detection, for instance, right? I mean, in the financial industry, it already has been for the last few years, has been very successfully implemented for credit card organizations, for instance, uh, being able to use machine learning capabilities to detect real-time fraudulent activity. It's super cool. But at the same time, we also hear about hackers using these capabilities to have um, NLP or natural language uh, processing models write phishing emails, right? Which are much more convincing than human beings. Or we also hear about using AI for making ransomware or any kind of other malware much more difficult to detect because it mimics other network components and it passes by a regular or expected element within the network of the organization. So mimicking behavior of other systems. We have also examples of these, which means AI, as much as it is helping us, is also helping or bumping up the capabilities of criminal actors. So that was AI, right? And the second thing I wanted to mention is cryptocurrencies, which are also becoming much more common, a tool of investment, even a tool of trade, more and more common these days, right? But as their popularity is increasing, so is the hacking incident surrounding these these platforms. So we have several examples of uh, platforms being breached. Clearly, blockchain as a technology is secure by nature, by the way of its, 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 its design. But of course, and unfortunately, we cannot take these technologies out of their context. So what I mean here is is that when you create a trading platform, for instance, for these cryptocurrencies, the weaknesses or vulnerabilities of these platforms can immediately impact 
the security of the of your cryptocurrency that you have invested in that platform, right? For instance, when you are exchanging one cryptocurrency to the other, you have to use these platforms that have certain reserves of these two cryptocurrencies so you can actually exchange one for the other. And apparently these bridge platforms have a vulnerability that hackers have been uh, taking advantage of. And there are several cryptocurrency exchange platforms have been hacked over the last year because of this uh, vulnerability, for instance. So I think these two trends is what we will hear more about in the next five years or so. And so I'm interested, though, in uh, the role people that human error has to play in this. You know, many more tasks today are automated digitally than they were five years ago. And Many expect that trend to continue, right? There will be more and more automation as AI takes the position of humans in more and more functions within companies. There will be less human intervention. Do you think that will lead to less of a cyber threat because there are sort of just less people to make mistakes, less people who are dealing with secure elements of the system to make those mistakes? I actually don't think so. Because currently what AI is replacing is mostly tasks, right? That's what AI is great at, automating tasks rather than jobs per se. So even if we come to a position where we do start automating full-blown jobs, there will always be others, right? Because we also don't stop in our position when it comes to how and to what extent we use technology. So we will see new platforms, we will see new technologies. For instance, let's talk about uh, a virtual reality, right? Let's talk about the metaverse. So already so many organizations are creating initiatives in metaverse, exploring its commercial capability, right? Its, its, its value, potential value. But immediately, we also started hearing about how, for instance, these VR sets can be hacked, how people's voices can be recorded. I was even reading about a research. Two researchers conducted an experiment, and they were able to deduce what the VR headset user was saying through the vibration of their jawbone. I mean, this is like mind-blowing to me, right? They could... They, they could glean a message from without hearing what the actual user was saying. So super interesting stuff is also happening there. And the more we are pushed towards this virtual reality, the more vulnerabilities will become, let's say, or will resurface is, is what I believe. So maybe we will hear less about phishing, but I'm sure there will be other things that we will hear more. As long as we continue using technology the way we are today, the more it's mashed into our daily lives, the more vulnerabilities will, will be created. And it sounds like there's this arms race between people who are looking to uh, take advantage of companies and those who are looking to defend them in the digital space. Can you tell me, do you kind of see this as a, a losing battle? It sounded as if those who are implementing the strategies to attack have some kind of uh, inbuilt advantages just by the sheer nature of people's lack of understanding of how far technology can go. A lot of that sounded pretty absurd and sort of beyond the realms of reality to me. It does feel like we are swimming against the current, doesn't it? So that's why I also said I'm a bit pessimistic <laughs> as the way things are moving forward today. I do feel that our current organizational structure or digital architecture is like this one big huge ship that it takes time to kind of steer around. Whereas when it comes to 
criminal actors out there, they are much more agile, nimble, and they are also professional. Now, when you look into, just let's talk about the example of ransomware criminal supply chain, right? There are multiple actors that take on different responsibilities behind the scenes. There is a group of actors who create backdoors into organizations. That's all they do. They don't do anything else. Then they sell these backdoors to ransomware uh, actors, right? These are the these gangs are the ones that create this malicious software and infect your organization with it. And then there are other, let's say, brokers out there that actually do not create ransomware, but they purchase the right to use this ransomware to infect organizations. So the way I see it, there is kind of like a well-oiled machine as well on the other side, where technology is also aiding, right? Like you said, we know that they are using network scanning tools. These scanning tools actually show vulnerabilities. So if your, let's say, firewall service provider has released a patch or an upgrade, and you have been uh, you know, delaying the implementation of this new, new, new patch, they will see when they use this network scanning tools that you don't have yet the latest version of the software, for instance. And they, if there is a vulnerability associated with it, they will be able to take advantage of it. So they're also becoming very efficient the way they find organizations that have vulnerabilities. Listening to some of this, I would understand if some companies, some executives might want to completely move away from any digital presence at all. You know, I can, I can imagine uh, somebody sitting out there and thinking, okay, what's the best way to get ourselves off the internet entirely? Now, I mean, I guess, is there a way to do that these days? Do you think that the day of avoiding cybersecurity concerns is behind us uh, entirely at this point? I think it's behind us. I mean, imagine, do you think it's possible for any organization to avoid this, right? If there's this constant demand, if the world, the whole global scene of consumers will be your consumer base potentially, I mean, who would say no to the opportunities, right? Brought by this digital. But I think this feeling of, oh, I'm just a small company, I'm running under the radar, why would anyone attack me? I think this notion is crumbling down because it's not about they are kind of like fixing their gaze on you and trying to hack you at all costs, right? You are not hacked because you're targeted, but it, I think it works the other way as well. You are targeted because you can be hacked. Uh, what do I mean with that? So they are with, with, with these technologies, with these scanning tools, when they see that you are an organization that has vulnerabilities, then they will come after you, right? They don't need to be motivated to necessarily break into your organization. But if you are hackable, then they will come after you because it's not just about your finances, but it's also about the data that you're sitting on. If you're a consumer-facing organization, you're definitely, by default, a target organization because personal data is the most valuable asset that they can trade uh, on the dark web. Okay, so uh, we've established you can't escape. We've established that uh, things may get worse before they get better. Where's your research focused, right? What are you looking at? What are you thinking about as the next area of uh, academic literature for yeah. cybersecurity? 
I think there's so much that we should be looking at. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a prioritization for us as well. Just in the previous edition of uh, Sloan Management Review, I have published something specifically on ransomware. So we looked into six steps or six questions organizations should ask before they experience such a thing. And hopefully they will be able to keep a cool head in case they experience such a such a such a such an attack, right? So that is a recently finished initiative. What I'm currently working on is best practices around working with external cyber incident response teams. So what are the best practices? What are the must dos and must not dos when organizations are hiring incident response teams? that do not full-time reside in their organization, right? Because we do know that more and more organizations do need help, especially digital forensics help, if they don't have the required expertise in-house. So we see more and more organizations hiring this. So there's a relationship building that must be done. Because when you think about the assets under threat, these cybersecurity-related partnerships are strategic partnerships. So we must come up with some best practices, and that's what I'm uh, working on. And the final piece that I can mention is the changing role of chief information security officers. At one point, they were the enablers. They are the ones that secure the IT systems the organization has decided to invest in. Are they now trust builders, maybe? Given the fact that we are seeing... Technology investment by itself is not enough to keep security, but you need to make sure that the whole organization has a cybersecurity culture, all organizational units working hand in hand, everybody has this, we are in this together feeling. So how does a chief information security officer enable this collaboration within the organization and collaboration with the external third parties? So now we do see the CISO becoming let's say, further away from the technology and closer to the governance mechanisms in the organization, closer to the culture building initiatives in the organization, and closer to, closer to more policy slash compliance positions in the organization because we have more, more and more regulations coming our way that are expecting an absolute minimum when it comes to cybersecurity, right? So we do see this time investment of CISO changing from technology towards more processes in the organization. So I think that's also interesting to, to understand where the next uh, security officer in organizations will be headed. And, you know, you've, you've spoken to many people, trained many people, had many people join your course at IMD and then head out into the big wide world to deal with these issues. I mean, can you think of anybody off the top of your head or can you think of any examples of the big players? Who's doing this really well? Who that, who that you've met do you think is really representing the next generation of, uh, of CISOs and what they're going to become? You know, it's very interesting. Most of the CISOs that I talk to do acknowledge that their job involves less and less hands-on technology. Let's, let's put it that way. They don't get their hands on technologies as much as they would like to. And they always say that they miss that. But still, even that is the case, almost everyone agrees that the best person for such a role would need to have technical understanding and capability as much as the social skills. 
right? So we do traditionally see the security engineers later on taking up the CISO role. I think that will keep dominating, let's say, the market. But we, by the day, we are becoming aware of the need that CISOs must also be very good communicators. They need to be focusing on more than just the technology. They need to be also be able to handle the governance-related compliance-related and policy-related aspects of their security-related job as well. So more social capabilities will become important as we as we go along. I think from a more industry perspective, there is a lot of movement in the startup scene when it comes to cybersecurity. There are, for instance, really interesting startups here in Switzerland working on passwordless authentication, right? We all have our password fatigue. For instance, how do we, can we and should we get rid of passwords? Can we really rely on, let's say, biometrics information? Or are there other means of confirming that I am really who I say I am without the necessity for a phrase that I have to type, right? So there are several startups that are actually working on this and exploring Uh, the possibility of removing friction from users when they start using any system out there, right? How do we diminish the role or dependence on passwords? The other thing that I uh, try to keep an eye on is the cybersecurity awareness training platforms. There are many out there because now every organization needs to invest in these kind of training programs. But there are a few, for instance, from the UK, that focus on behavioral aspects of this. How do I make sure that employees really learn? How can I catch them in an environment when they are most open to learning about this? Maybe just a very fishy email dropped in their inbox. Could I catch this and use that moment as a teaching moment? So that instead of going to a platform, clicking through some videos and screens and answering some, mostly quite silly, to be honest, multiple choice questions on cybersecurity, how can I transform this learning experience so that the knowledge is sticky, so that they learn better, so that they don't forget later on? So these are the topics that I find very interesting and some really cool startups are uh, looking into these things. And Oiku, we're all familiar with uh, fingerprint technology. We're all familiar with uh, using your face to get into your phone. I mean, you've mentioned that there's a lot of good ideas out there. Could you outline for me just one far out idea that you've come across that uh, a startup is trying to bring in as an identifier? Now, the thing is, yes, this this one startup that I'm keeping in touch with has already been proven to be successful. But of course, they don't tell us what exactly is proprietary information. So they don't tell me how they authenticate users, right? But they say when it comes to password-less authentication, it's about three things. Something you know, something you have, and something you are. These three things, right? So something you know is often a password. Something you have is indeed, if it's online banking, your card, right? Or your Mm -hmm. access Mm -hmm. card or some extra thing that they delivered to you. And something you are is the fingerprint, voice recognition, or retina scan, finger, fingerprint scan, things like that. So I know that they are playing around with these concepts, but they are not telling us how exactly they are authenticating. And I don't know any other out there initiatives, unfortunately. I wish I did. And so, Oiki, 
you mentioned there, you know, the potential death of passwords, which I'm sure many people will be very happy with, because honestly, that question of password hygiene and the the great labour people go into to remember everything, try not to make all their passwords exactly the same, and I'm sure we all have yeah. trouble doing that. Um, yes. <laughs> but you know what I'm what I'm interested in here is you mentioned about all these different startups that are trying different things. You know, it's clear that you know what is today's science fiction is in you know five and ten and fifteen years time. It always seems to happen that today's science fiction becomes reality. I'm thinking about fingerprint sensors, which we have on everyday items, uh, the ability of our phones to recognise our faces. You know, can you tell me, you've been speaking with these startups, you know, what does the future of that look like? What are we going to be doing that we're not doing now to authenticate ourselves on these devices and in a work environment? Yeah, John, passwords really seem to be big, like a, like a big sharp knife hanging out our neck. Currently, we depend on our passwords so, so much. But at the same time, we also know that if a hacker gets his or hands on a valid username and password, a credential of an employee, all those investments you have made on firewalls, on network management, all suddenly become useless, right? Because the attacker has valid access to your network. That is why this user authentication is cybersecurity is pretty important, will say important, and there is now the focus on this passwordless authentication. So when you think about user authentication in general, the systems that we currently have use either something you are, something you have, or something you know. The something you know is the password. Now we are expanding what is needed by adding something you have. So here now we're talking about multi-factor authentication, right? So when you want to log into your online banking, a code comes to your mobile phone number, which you have to enter online, right? So there's a second line that you have to make sure that you have access to that mobile phone number because that's the only way you will get that code. And now people are more and more moving towards something you are, which is biometrics your retina scan, voice recognition, fingerprint scan, for instance. So the combination of these three elements is, of course, much more secure. But I guess we also have to keep in mind that if your password is hacked and breached and made public, you can always change that. But what happens when a database holding biometric information is breached? which happened, by the way. You cannot change your fingerprints, right? You cannot change your retina scan. So we also have to consider these implications as well. So how do we make sure that we then protect to the best of our abilities if we start collecting individuals' identifiable information, which is also sensitive and personal information, right? It would also have regulatory implications there as well. Oiku, so much to think about, almost too much to think about, I would think. However, you're in the field of making it much more understandable, and I feel like I'm much closer to getting a handle on uh, cybersecurity in the modern world and what we have to come today. So I just want to say thank you again for this final week of joining us on the show. Thank you very much. It, it has been very fun and interesting to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. Next week on Management Cast, we'll be speaking to IMD Professor Jennifer Jordan. Speak to you next time. You've been listening to the Management Cast from IMD. For more to read, you can go to iBarIMD online, which offers exclusive business intelligence and interviews with the brightest minds in the industry. 
written by experts for experts.